Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. The seemingly endless pandemic has created a lot of after-effects in our society. The loss of jobs, the loss of security, and sometimes with that comes a loss of basics such as a steady source of food. In a bit, we'll talk with an expert on how communities grow and distribute food. But first, we'll talk over Zoom with Thomas Mance. He's president and CEO of Feeding Tampa Bay. Welcome to Florida Matters. Really happy to be there. I appreciate you uh, having us on. You know, first, Thomas, can you just give our listeners a little description about Feeding Tampa Bay, how much food you distribute every month, and how it gets to where it needs to go? Sure. So Feeding Tampa Bay is the area's largest food relief and recovery system. So we have you know, one main goal, which is a hunger-free Tampa Bay. Uh, we have two outcomes we want, which is health. And that really comes from access to good, nutritious food. And we also want capability. And so we also provide resources, programs, trainings, to help folks uh, who also need other support services in their lives, because we know when someone comes in uh, for a meal, that's simply the symptom that we see, but their underlying challenges. So we seek to provide a wide array of services and programs that really lift people back to a place of capability. An organization like ours, uh, last year, uh, we provided uh, just shy of 95 million meals to the 10-county area that we serve. Uh, so that's a little over 120 million, 115 million pounds of food. And so that food comes from a variety of different sources. Uh, so from grocery stores, farms, all those, uh, we collect every bit of excess resource. And then we distribute it back out either ourselves or we use a lot of really terrific partners across our 10 counties. So folks, you know, uh, uh, churches, uh, folks like Metropolitan Ministries, other great organizations that, that are doing work in the community, we partner with them to localize uh, delivery in those particular areas. You know, I volunteered uh, with my kids a couple of times at the warehouse yeah. on 50th Street in, in East Tampa. You know, there seems to be, when I'm there, there's a really good spirit, a good vibe, if you will, and very upbeat. You know, are you getting all the help you need and how much do you rely on volunteers like me? So I think there's two aspects, Steve, to volunteering that are really important. And you, you mentioned both. So one, for an organization like ours, we'll have somewhere around 50,000 folks that volunteer with us every year. If you were to take that into translate it into cost of personnel, that saves an organization like ours about four and a half million dollars a year. That's a huge gift of time. But I think the other thing that's important that nonprofits like ours do with volunteers is we allow people to connect with the part of themselves and their community that matter to them. You know, we often say our volunteer team will say, we want you to have the best three hours of your week. And when you come in and you work with us, you'll know that your efforts led directly to someone in our community having a better day, a better life, a better circumstance. And I think that's important practically. I think it's also important psychically. Uh, that's one of the great things about the nonprofit community is we allow people to connect with their best selves. All right, let's um, talk about the need here with the with the pandemic easing a bit. We'll see if it's getting any better. But I looked at some figures, and nationally, food banks across the country saw about a one third increase in the first quarter of this year compared to the first quarter of 
2020, just before the pandemic hit. How does that compare with the with the figures here in Tampa Bay? So we are right at that. So we're still about 35% over pre-pandemic levels. Uh, as we talked last time we spoke, we were up as much as four and 500% in early days. It was just uh, crazy, but it's leveled out. Uh, for the better part of about a year now. So about October of last year, we saw pretty much a leveling of need. And it has stayed at this level for quite a while. And Steve, we kind of knew that because if you go back and you track the fiscal crisis of 07 and 08, you can see very similar patterns that happen when a food insecurity event, like typically a financial meltdown, a hurricane, or in this instance, a pandemic, uh, because we also want to make sure that Uh, Folks understand it takes a long time for someone who is marginally uh, economically situated to recover, right? If you are already somewhat teetering, when you have some sort of crisis, or we would call it an economic shock, it takes quite a while to rebuild your uh, personal and household capability. It's one of the reasons why we see the persistence of numbers remaining higher. The other part that I would share with your listeners, and I think you know this, Really great news about wages rising, right? I think uh, there's been a a lot of organizations, certain companies, Bank of America notably, really moving up their hourly wages um, and all sorts of other corporations that are doing that. The unfortunate part is we're also right in the middle of a significant inflation spike. And so all those folks that saw an increase in income have also seen an increase in gas prices, in rent prices, in grocery prices. And so a lot of those gains that would have been made up by better income have been just uh, eaten up by inflation. And so people aren't in an appreciably different spot. So it's a really long way of saying we expect that to be a persistent problem. Right. So even though the COVID seems to be finally ebbing, hopefully until the next variant comes roaring down the pike, heaven forbid, this is going to be a continuing problem. People shouldn't, you know, stop helping, shouldn't take their foot off the gas, try to volunteer, try to help. Yeah, and I I think we would say at the end of the day, it takes a long time for folks to recover. We would suggest, and we told our board uh, when the pandemic was happening, it'd be three to five years for the uh, folks we serve to return to the place they were pre-pandemic. So for our community, we could use your help still. And when folks ask how they can help, we usually say there's three ways you can support us. Time, the ability to volunteer, and probably there's no more precious commodity someone has than time. Of course, financially, organizations like ours go as far as our terrific donors take us. And so if you're situated and able to do that, we would really appreciate that support, as would all the other food nonprofits in our community. And then last is give the gift of your voice. Okay, well, we're doing we're doing our part getting the story out. I was wondering how you get the food out. How do you get the food to people who need it? Are there centers, government centers? How does it all work? So we work with, across our 10 counties, we work with 450 nonprofit organizations, right? So we will work with your local church. We have pantries inside of close to 50 schools now. So when someone comes and picks up their child, they can shop. Uh, We have pantries with federal qualified health clinics and other health care providers. We have pantries that are uh, placed with the Pinellas County bus system, right? So anywhere where people gather for resources, we try and make sure there's food there. There's pretty much no one in the Tampa Bay area that's handing out food that doesn't get some or all of that food through our organization. And that's what Feeding Tampa Bay is built to do. We're the large scale provider and, and then distributor. And then in each local community, there are a few different organizations, churches, civic associations that are distributing the food locally because people don't want to 
they can't move far to get food. We try and make sure it's available uh, as, as easily as it needs to be for each particular person that, uh, that requires. And you have, you have trucks that go out to uh, various places, um, you know, some places in the community. On the road right now, we have about 55 different trucks, tractor trailers, right? And so we'll back up, uh, our straight trucks will back up to about 585 grocery stores across our 10 counties at certain Dollar Trees and Dollar Stores we pick up, as well as a variety of other different providers. So our trucks are all out gathering excess capacity, right? So when you think about going to the grocery store and you think about that outer ring where there are perishables, uh, they'll donate, the stores donate all of that to us that they can't necessarily move. And it's perfectly good because it's a sell by date, not a use by date. And then we grab those and we turn around and get those in the community, either ourselves or through our partners. And then it ends up on someone's table just a few days later. I'm trying to get a feel for where you are in the whole machinery of food distribution. Uh, you know, there's SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance yeah. Program that President Biden just increased uh, recently. Food stamps, uh, school feeding programs, lunch programs. Do you fill in the gap for people who can't get that government assistance that are unable to? Maybe they're undocumented, for instance. Yeah, so that's a great way. You use the word there. That's a great word, which is gap. Let's talk about kids first. So as you know, in the state of Florida, I think the number right now is uh, north of 5 billion or higher than that food that is allocated to children every year. And most of that goes in through schools because children are typically fed. If you're free and reduced, you're fed breakfast, lunch, and a snack. But we often fill in on nighttime meals and weekends when children aren't fed. Same thing with summers when kids aren't able to get to school. So we have programs that fill in those gaps, right? So that's how we think about that. When you look at other areas where there are gaps, seniors have gaps as well. And then you look at someone who does or does not qualify for SNAP. And so first and foremost, the interesting thing about SNAP or food stamps, as they were formerly known, SNAP is an incredibly underutilized vehicle. In fact, uh, most people don't know they qualify. So one of the things we do when we give groceries to folks, we say, hey, you might qualify for SNAP. Let's talk to you about that. Now, because for every one meal we can provide, SNAP can provide about 10 meals and it puts someone back into a grocery store and it has an economic value for that grocery store. If folks don't qualify, uh, then we do step into those gaps as well. And that's where we often think of ourselves as the fourth week of the month. A lot of folks have enough income and resources, but oftentimes just not quite enough to get through a full month. And so organizations like ours, you know, it's, it's not literally true, but actually many times it is, but, but certainly it's figuratively true that we're the fourth week of the month that help folks bridge gaps. Thomas, I'd like to ask you how the pandemic changed the, the types of people who come to you for help. Uh, are we seeing more, you know, instead of being primarily lower income, like you most likely saw before the pandemic. Were you seeing more middle-class, more people who don't typically ask for help, don't ask for government assistance? Yes. So I think one of the things, you know, if we did a whole other show with you, we could do it on the misconceptions about people that are in social services. The first thing that I always say about the people we serve is I think they're some of the most bravest people that I've been around. They're some of the most kindest and thoughtful people that I've been around. And not one of them ever got up one morning and said, I would like to be on a food line today. And I think it's important for people to understand that, that, you know, we have a saying in our world, don't criticize the choices that I made until you understand the options I had. 
And we find many people are in difficult circumstances for a variety of reasons. But over the years, so I've been in food relief now, Steve, for 13 years, something like that. Every year in food relief, the bar has gone higher and higher in terms of who accesses our services. Years and years ago, when food banks started, they were really meant to take care of the folks who were really just skirting along the bottom of the economy. But we see people on a regular basis who have good income comparatively, have their own living circumstances, are taxpayers in a part of our economy, but don't make enough to make ends meet. And so, yes, the simple answer to your question is we continue to see a higher echelon, let's call that, of income earner uh, in our care. Uh, because when you think about wage rise, just we've had wage rise in the last year, maybe six months, mm -hmm. but wage rise has been significantly slowed for many years. And so folks that had what they considered a good income fell behind further and further. And then in a place like Tampa Bay, that's exacerbated by being a tourist economy, a leisure economy, a restaurant economy, where traditional wages have been lower. And so people that work in all of those industries are folks that we see on a regular basis. And so I do think, Steve, we're going to continue to see folks in our care. You know, we would tell you this uh, where you work, but also folks that listen to this, they know someone they work alongside who is food insecure. Are you encountering any reticence from people who never have asked for help before they maybe they got this pride thing going i've never asked for a dime of my life kind of thing but now i need it and they're kind of hesitant to come to food banks places like yours how do you deal with that yes we find that the level of shame and guilt and embarrassment is high i can't tell you how many times i have handed a bag of food to someone or welcomed them into our doors to shop whatever it may be who are in tears and embarrassed uh, because no one says, as I said a moment ago, no one really contemplates being in a circumstance where they have to ask for help. And so, yes, people are embarrassed. And we find this, uh, particularly when we look at folks who we try and sign up for certain programs or benefits that they qualify for, and they'll say, I don't want government handouts. I'm not comfortable with that. And we'll say, look, you qualify, and this is a benefit your taxes have helped pay for, and you should avail yourself of this just like someone does to, you know, when they're doing their taxes and they take qualifications for X, Y, or Z, uh, but people will not do it. Probably, um, we did a study at one point that uh, about 50% of the people that might use our care don't use it because of embarrassment or shame. Uh, and so it's a significant factor. It's an issue. And I'd imagine it's very difficult reaching people like that who don't like to get help. I mean, you just have to appeal to, um, I don't know, what do you appeal to? So I think what happens to all of us in circumstances, it's one of the reasons why people will come out for food more than any other social service, right? Because we have a very low barrier to access. Steve, if you showed up at one of our distributions today, even if you were just fine, we would hand you food and ask you what else we could do for you. Uh, because we trust that you're there because you feel you need to be there. And we hope, uh, particularly when folks like you ask a question like that and people listen, everybody is welcome. The second thing that we feel really strongly about is the dignity of every single human being that comes into our care. And one of our objectives is to make sure that everybody that walks through our doors comes into contact with us, that they feel we're treating them in a dignified way. A few years ago, and the pandemic changed this a little bit because of safety issues, a few years ago, we switched everything to client choice. Food banks used to just hand people boxes or bags of food and said, here, 
We changed that around so that everybody just shops for what they want to need. And interestingly, it cut down on waste and it increased dignity and a sense of pride because folks were coming in and they were saying, I want this, this, and this. That's what I could use for my family. Thank you very much. I don't need anything more. And so we really believe in this concept. The other thing that I would share with your listeners, if I had a dime for every person that has come in and volunteered after being a food recipient, I'd be a rich man. I cannot tell you the number of people that have said, you guys helped me at one of my lowest points. I'm going to come back and give you the gift of my time. I can't give you a donation because I'm still struggling, but I'm willing to come in and volunteer with you. And the converse has been true as well. People that have volunteered with us have told us on our food lines, I used to volunteer with you. I never, ever thought I would be in one of your food lines. Well, we're grateful for everything you do and for all the volunteers uh, that are out there as well. Thomas Mance is president and CEO of Feeding Tampa Bay. Thank you so much for your comments and everything you're doing. Thank you, Steve. Next up, after this short break, we'll talk with an expert in community food systems. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Florida Matters. Let's rejoin our conversation about food insecurity and hunger via Zoom with Dr. Katherine Campbell. She's an assistant professor of community food systems for IFAS, the Institute of Food and Agricultural Services at the University of Florida. Welcome to Florida Matters. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Well, Dr. Campbell, before we get into some of the research you're currently doing, could you give our listeners a broad picture of how food insecurity and hunger has increased in Florida during the pandemic? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and something that we've really been struggling with since the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020. When we had uh, those shutdowns, um, we saw a dramatic increase in food insecurity and need for food assistance programs such as uh, food banks. And we've seen that more or less sustained since that March of 2020. There's been a huge increase in demand and need. How have food banks changed during the pandemic and uh, have their numbers exploded? They have exploded. Uh, in a research project I did over the past 18 months or so, uh, we were hearing from food banks that their demand had increased in some cases by 500%. With the overlapping uh, increase of need, but then also the needs to take precautions for safety to account for their volunteers' safety, uh, many of the volunteers in these organizations are people in high-risk groups, so people who are retirees often will volunteer, and so they both had an increase in demand, but then also lost a lot of the people who had been able to be there to volunteer and help them. Um, so it was sort of a double, a double overlapping stress on the system. How are, how are the food banks coping with that? Are they having to hire people instead of relying on you know, like seniors, volunteers? My understanding is the good thing that coincided with the increase in demand is that there was a real increase in public consciousness, uh, particularly with disruptions in the food supply chain, uh, which happened you know, right as we were going into lockdown, people were going into grocery stores and seeing empty shelves and it increased awareness of issues with food. And so because some of the people who 
had gone home and were in a lockdown situation, they had more time to give donations and potentially to help out um, because they weren't able to work. And so with an increase in demand, there was also an increase in donations and community support for the food banks. These increases in community support also came from food producers. So for food producers who lost their traditional markets where they sell uh, their produce, so many of our Florida farmers sell to food service and the cruise industry. Um, And so when those shutdowns happened, they had large amounts of unsold produce that they were then able to donate to food banks and food banks were able to redistribute that to families in need in Florida. Well, let's talk about the supply chain you just mentioned. Now that the um, the cruise ships are cruising again, uh, probably that food is not going to be going to the places where it's needed. How has the disruption in that supply chain we've all been reading about put a kink in the way food gets to like grocery stores? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because there was all of this media coverage right in March and April of 2020, where we were seeing farmers dumping milk, farmers plowing produce back into the fields because they lost markets. And some people's reaction was, well, there's such great need. Why why aren't they providing that food to the people that need it? And this is where you run into those issues of supply chain and the way our current food system is set up is that you know, we have packaging and trucks and you know equipment that's set up to handle food in very specific ways. And in some cases that's necessary for food safety regulations. And so it's really hard for these producers to pivot to change from selling you know, things in bulk to selling them in small containers and getting them to stores and to food banks and people that need it. And one of the added difficulties for providing it to families in need via food banks is that many food banks don't have cold storage or refrigeration that they need to handle a large quantity of produce they wouldn't normally be seeing because that produce would normally be sold in that restaurant and cruise ship industry. So uh, how has COVID-19 affected um, here in Florida, like fruit and vegetable growers? Has their business been severely affected? At the onset of the pandemic, it was possibly the worst possible scenario, to be honest, because our very peak production time here in Florida is right in that March and April time span. And so at that time of year, the farmers have invested their maximum amount of money in terms of labor and everything that they've had to do in terms of inputs to get something from seed to a fully formed vegetable. And so they had gotten all the way to the point of harvest and in some cases had already harvested that. And so they had maximally invested and then had no market. Um, And so that was an incredibly difficult year for them. Whereas up North, some, some farmers that were earlier in the growing season could just scale back their production. There was a big loss for the Florida producers last in the spring of 2020. But the interesting thing that happened associated with that increased awareness of supply chain and increased interest in sort of the food system is that there's been a huge boom in awareness and interest in local food systems here in Florida. So Florida consumers looking to buy Florida produce. 
And that kind of interest and support at the local level can help develop those supply short supply chains that I was mentioning before would be useful um, to sort of handle on a regular ongoing basis, selling at a small scale to local consumers. Do you think that's a, maybe a short-term benefit here because we've, you know, we've all heard about how like tomato farmers in Mexico, for instance, are undercutting the local market, that sort of thing. You think this might be just a, a temporary phase here we're going through, or do you see maybe longer-term benefits from it? Well, Steve, I really hope it's not short-term. That's part of the work that I do at University of Florida IFAS is to try to increase this awareness on the part of consumers of the importance of those local connections and maintaining our local food system, our community food system, uh, which will make us more resilient in times of crisis, which can be public health emergencies like COVID-19, but it can also be examples like hurricanes, which we have here in Florida, which disrupt supply chains. But if we have food that's being grown on a local level and we have a local network of producers and consumers that are aware of them and their value, that can help us to support a resilient local food system that isn't reliant on food from other countries. And so I I see this as a potential ongoing benefit for Florida's food system. Well, you know, there's always been such a problem with food waste. So much food gets produced that gets thrown out and never reaches the people who it needs to reach. Uh, You know, I think we're kind of seeing maybe an ebbing of that. You know, the only concrete example I can think of is the ugly fruit aisle, right? You go to some of the farmer's markets, here's the ugly fruit that no one wanted to buy before. And there it is at at lower prices. Um, Are are we seeing kind of an increase in maybe you buying food that isn't perfect looking? Yeah, I think that there's an increase in acceptance in consumers on the part of consumers for produce that maybe looks a little bit different because we are more aware now of food waste. And, you know, if we're trying to ensure that we can feed all of our Florida residents and Americans, we need to to make better use of the food that we are producing, um, given that you know, I believe 40% of the food that's produced ends up being wasted. And so with the number of people in our country who are hungry and food insecure, if we're already producing that food, finding ways to ensure that it's being used is beneficial. And I think people are starting to realize that. If there's any silver lining from this whole COVID thing, and I'm sure there's a silver lining in everything, are we seeing maybe a, a broader awareness of the problem of food insecurity out there and maybe an increase in the methods to get food to where it needs to go the most? I think we're seeing that as, as a silver lining. I mean, increased awareness is one of the most important first steps to making changes. And so there are people who have never had to think about where to get food before. So there were people who went to food banks or received food assistance for the very first time in their lives during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this increasing cultural awareness of food and issues related to food seems to be ongoing in a way that's really important. Dr. Catherine Campbell is an assistant professor of community food systems for IFAS at the University of Florida. Thank you so much for being on Florida Matters. Thank you so much for having me. 
And that's it for today's show. Our thanks go to Dr. Catherine Campbell and Thomas Mance of Feeding Tampa Bay and all they do. And thanks to our producer, Denora Prevost. I'm Steve Newborn. We'll catch you next week for another edition of Florida Matters.